Welcome to What's Your Beef, a Beef Australia production. Each week we will introduce you to people living and working in the beef community and some of the characters that help deliver the iconic triennial event. Hello, this is What's Your Beef and I'm Jane Cudahy. The beauty about Beef Australia is that it's so much more than the physical event every three years in Rockhampton. Relationships and conversations carry on well beyond the ticket gate and networks grow directly from people you meet at forums, events and appraising cattle at a pen. David Foote is no stranger to much of our audience. He's spent an inordinate amount of time in the Australian beef industry with at least 20 years of experience at the helm of Australian country choice. He's forged relationships, ideas and directed many a difficult conversation to the betterment of his business and the industry. He's also the inaugural chair of the newly formed Cattle Australia. He's taken on the role fully aware of the challenges ahead, but with the utmost respect for the industry and its sustainable and successful future. Okay, well, Jane, thanks for the opportunity. You're right, I've been around a long time, which means I was born a long time ago. Um, <laughs> born, born, born to dairy farmers in South Australia who in the end I worked out loved me because they did sell the farm before I was old enough to have to milk the cows. So, uh, <laughs> That's so a fairly I've, good logic, I reckon. I've <laughs> always appreciated them for that. And born in South Australia, so very proud South Australia. I have to say, I tried to look up uh, where your school was. I went, was going through your LinkedIn profile and uh, I couldn't find it. So it was... Yeah, um, no, there, is, there isn't us. I'll, I'll be boring. I asked the school the hard knocks, Jane, of oh. course. But no, no, no. It's, like, it's up in the... It's, uh, it's in, in the mid-north of South Australia and, like, everybody finished schooling in Adelaide because the high schools didn't go all the way in, in, the, in the bush. And those years, my first real job was making concrete cattle and sheep troughs at Hume's Concrete right. in Adelaide. And was that a traineeship or was that just a job that you had after you finished school? No, uh, my mum was the accountant. So <laughs> it was a, but, no, the reality is my first real, real job was actually as an internal auditor for the South Australian Department of Agriculture. Right. That gave me the opportunities to visit all their research stations, which back in that era they had quite a few, and to the point where I got most excited and transferred to the Struan Research Centre uh, to work down there, which at the time was a leading research centre in terms of bovine reproduction. Is that still South Australia or is that in the... Ta- still ta- South, Stra- still yeah, South yeah. Australia, in the yeah. southeast South Australia, just, just south of Narracourt. Okay. Um, and there were some, some legendary scientists worked there and a lot of early work was done on multiple yeah, multiple carvings, double muscling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's back in the 70s. Yeah, so right. uh, some famous people, I think John Obbs to... Ended up in Victoria and Nick Deland, I think, and Ian Johnson. So it generated a lot of the scientists back out into the into the a wider world um, from Struan. So that was nice. It was nice touch, and I guess that's where I got back engaged. I guess with uh, being in the paddock and handling back with animals. Yes, well, look, there was another, I have to say, while I was still um, stalking you a little on LinkedIn and looking down your incredible list of positions like, you know, and beef industry focused, including Meat Industry Council, Queensland Food, Fibre and Agribusiness Council, Queensland Food Industry Council and the Australian Meat Processor Council. And I'm not even touching the surface, but the one that really stood out to me was the Southwest Queensland Bilby Research <laughs> Group. 
So yes. uh, <laughs> where did that one come from? <laughs> well, no, that, that one, well, actually, that actually came from in my start of my career at Stanbrook, the Queensland government was resuming an area of Davenport Downs in western Queensland from Stanbrook for the Willoughby. Ah, so it was it was still beef industry involved then. Oh, the huge very much involved because <laughs> yes, no, they were the the property was to be resumed to protect what was meant to be a fastly becoming extinct uh, bilby population, and uh, so it was resumed by the Queensland government, but it turned into a land swap. So out of that uh, became a joint task force between private industry science and the Queensland Government about how do we recover uh, the building. He spent 20 years at the at the helm of Australian Country Choice, though, with a tremendous relationship and, and partnership with the Lee family. What kept you there? That would, That's quite a long period of time. I guess the, the easiest answer is we never stood still from the day I walked through the door. We were building and growing each aspect of the business for the entire 20 years. And, in fact, it, it's, it's, it's still growing. I mean, the Lee family is still buying properties, adding new interests um, to, to, their, to their business. So it was really it was just the most fantastic growth to, to be on and, and, and as they too allowed to be on. I mean, I walked into the door at ACC in 1998 with 3,000 cattle in one cattle station and 100 staff. And I guess walked out the door nearly, in, 20, in 2020 with, I guess, 42 properties, 300,000 cattle capacity, 55,000 cattle in feedlots and 1,400 staff. So, you know, an overnight success, it just took 20 years to get there. It must have been when you're so invested in that and, and you've got that real momentum, how hard was it to step away? Oh, near bloody impossible. Um, but in the end, you've actually got to... to have successful succession is you've actually got to move. If you're not moving away, just look away. Nobody's going to do it as you did it, and you can't expect that to be. So you just judge the outcomes. If they're the same, it really doesn't matter the journey to get there. Yeah, I reckon that rings fairly true, and I guess is a wonderful segue into to your new role at the moment, um, you've just taken on the chair as the uh, new industry body group, Cattle Australia. And, you know, it is a daunting task on, on many levels, not least bringing together the industry, which is, which has been somewhat fragmented. And again, a really a busy uh, role uh, after you've just described an incredibly busy one over the last 20 years. So what, what piqued your interest about this? Why were you so, you know, driven about this role? Two things. I guess I'm only the chair because that's what the other directors decide on the day would be best for the for the transition. So, you know, so getting the nomination first was probably the challenge to why bother? You know, it's time it's time for new faces, new breath to to come into this. And I guess I shouldn't say the jungle drums are beating, but there are probably enough people asking me. And for me, starting to maybe feel a touch guilty having been on the industry leaders forum and then the backup on the restructuring steering committee to make it all happen, to not be there was probably almost squibbing it. 
or or, or, or opting out. So once I had agreed and accepted the nomination and put your hand up uh, into what probably quite daunting is the first popularity contest I've had to go in because <laughs> gen- generally is the boss to be popular because, you know, it says so on the bottom of your business card or on your office door. You've got the protection of the boss. The boss. So submitting yourself to a beauty parade, which I'll generally always come last at, um, it was it was a little bit daunting. But I guess, you know, you, you said guilt, but I'd say surely there's a hook there for you, the, the potential of being able to build something. You, you obviously enjoy that, you know, momentum and, and excitement around or the challenge of building. It's the challenge. Um, it's it's the belief that our industry has the right to express itself and be listened to. I mean, we are the largest business sector. You know, 40,000 producers, 28 million cattle, I think 330 million under management and ownership. It has a right to have a really, really strong voice. Not just in advocacy, but just in general across across the community, and uh, so I've always, you know, felt strongly about that. Probably lit a fuse, I think, at a rural press club, Ecker breakfast, and spoke about how maybe fragmented, uh, disorganised that the advocacy or representation of our industry was. Um, some people remember to saying, you know, more peaks than the Himalayas. Um, so it was probably as some people was trying to put up and, uh, and yeah. And also thinking I could maybe make a change because I have some breadth and depth across all aspects of the industry, maybe try and harness some of that and build something out of it. And with the, with a new director's team, I think, yeah, we're going to have a real crack anyway. Well, absolutely. We'll go into the directors a little bit more, but, you know, just before we do that, as you said yourself, it is a fragmented industry. How are you going to bring this industry together? I think if you go back to, you know, CCA was the national rise up from all the state farming organisations, which... And if we think about the state farming organisations without being disparaging, it's possibly a bit like the National Rail Line Network meet up and none of them are going in a common journey in the in the end. So I think the model now with Cattle Australia, which is allowed to be purely about cattle, yeah, for, for, for cattle owners and just focus on cattle and all the chal- all the challenges of cattle. So I think we got you know, we've got the new capacity and we've actually got a bit of freedom to forge our own way, you know. And I think we can say unite. I think if we can show the cattle producers of Australia that we have their interests only at heart and that we're going to just communicate with them, we're going to challenge for them. I don't want to use the word fight because we haven't got a, we haven't got a fight yet. We've got a challenge for them. And I think if they have a pointy end that they can just say, oh, that's the organisations that representing me where they can. Um, I think people will fall not into line, but they'll fall into the line of thinking of what Cattle Australia can stand for. There still will be the state farming organisations that are critical to servicing their state members on state matters. But we but we truly need, and what we're going to be is the national body, the national advocacy for farmers on national issues 
which picks up international as well. And so do you think, you know, because I, I did read a, a statistic that only about 1,169 cattle producers voted. That's out of 40,000 cattle producers in Australia. 3,500 were eligible to vote and so really only about a third of them did. So when you're talking about, you know, taking the politics and, and the state issues out of that and really just representing cattle producers at that grassroots level, do you expect the level of engagement to, to lift? Because that must be a pre- one of the most daunting challenges that you, that you face is breaking through. Jane, if the, if the level doesn't lift, then we'll have failed probably my first and biggest KPI um, in this role, which was to get engagement. But I don't want to overblow it. I mean, shareholders who voted BHP are something like 3% of all shareholders' votes. My understanding is that the MLA elections, their target is to have 4% of eligible members' votes. When, when you're saying, you know, well, one out of three, we've got 30% out of our members voted, which is huge. Mm. The challenge of having three out of the 40,000 is where we want to earn our stripes and end up with, you know, over time, five, six, seven, ten thousand. 10,000. If you're sitting in dreamland, you'd like to think that you may end up being the largest membership-based organisation. Well, you got to, you got to dream big, don't you? You got to start somewhere. Something like the NRMA. I mean, picking up something like that. And and I can't. If you're offering value for money or outcomes, then people will, I'm hopefully, want to come along for the journey and be proud to be part of it. Tell me a little bit about your board because they are there are um, a young dynamic board. We'll start with the north and the northern Australian. So you've got uh, Bryce Cam from the Cam Agricultural Group. He's a, um, a grazier. Adam Coffey. He's a, also a grazier owner, director of the Coffee Cattle Co. and and yourself as a director of the Tandara Partners. Adam is a key young person in agriculture across Queensland. I mean, he's he has a passion on sustainability, regenerative. So. He's going to be, you know, and he's really enthusiastic and he's got a great following and a great sounding. So he's just all energy plus. Bryce comes with a wealth of history in terms of agri and agri-politics through his role, obviously, with Alpha, through his role at Beef Australia, and obviously with his sleeves rolled up in Cam, in Cam Ag, uh, running through there. And then you just got the old greying bald head I've been around uh, for a long time, uh, me and so then, then we'll then we'll then we'll float into the south. Yep. And we got Elka Clevenden, who was was not known to be prior to, to the, the process, and looking looking lifting up the covers to Elky. She had one, you know, obviously on a farm, cattle, but has wide community interests in both banking and other industry areas. But so corporate governance, finance. And just organise, and being a mother, super organised, um, <laughs> and we're there, we're therefore we'll, we'll fit we'll fit everything in. George King has been known to me since George is a member of the Platinum Prime Producers, which has been a group running for about fifteen years across Australia, New Zealand, and with his wife Lindy is heavily involved in the in in digital uh, for for ag. So George's Angus cows in, in Central West uh, Orange, Bathurst area. So very much at the grassroots uh, operational level in contact with the growers um, in that region. And Gary Edwards, uh, Gary, I guess, is the, the next ageing um, corporate in ag across a wide spectrum of ag, 
finance, investment, corporate governance, you know, board governance, um, really, really strong. And but he's also, as I say, got his got his sleeves rolled up and fairly dusty boots. So um, not 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 shining a chair too often. And then the last but not least, but sitting way over there in southwest West Australia, James Bowie, who James also a cattle producer that's had a strong association and learnings from industry associations, not in ag, but I think in the mining sector, the gas sector. So it's, it's come with a lot of advocacy um, skills and, and I guess, um, approaches, but with an, ag, with an ag background. So, yeah, if, if you had all of us the same in the room, we'd get the same result. So I think it's a really, really strong group who have all put their hand up because they can all think they can make a, a contribution and a change contribution. What was the feeling like in the first few meetings? You've, you've seen each other a few times now. Obviously, there's, um, you know, there's still a few things hanging over your heads, and certainly in terms of the the legal challenge. Is that that's still going with the, from CPA? It was interesting because yes, I mean we were we were announced I think on the Monday. We had our first board meeting on the Tuesday. At that board meeting, we were advised the CEO was finishing up in three days' time, so that was useful. So we were down, we were down, down the CEO, and Christmas is upon us. Two of our staff couldn't be at the be at the meeting, so it's been a little bit awkward again, <laughs> trying to get everything together. When you're trying to get some momentum straight up, that makes it very yeah, difficult. Yeah, that's right. But, yeah. but I guess it ha- it has been, and of course we were we were told that uh, the next morning we had a directions hearing in the Supreme Court um, over the challenge to the process. So that was, I guess, a baptism of, of fire. But we've been around long enough to work out um, how to get how to get through that process. So, you know, people talk about priorities. Well, our first priority is to find a, a dynamic CEO. <laughs> a CEO. Um, <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's, that would be the first help. one, wouldn't it? Because I think people are focusing on the, we're allowed to have two extra directors, but. Um, It'll be a far, it's a far bigger priority for us to have a CEO. Well, that was my next question. So the CEO, and like with a blank slate, like maybe it is a blessing in disguise. Like I guess there's a lot of issues going on. It would have been great to have some continuity. But what what when you say dynamic, what else? What are you looking for? What would be an ideal kind of background for a CEO when you consider all, your, all the challenges ahead? Anybody who wants to work for bugger all, 70 hours a week, get no thanks and probably not, nothing but challenges, then please roll up. Huh. That's most cattle producers, isn't it? That's that's great. That's a wide net. We have the job for you. So, uh, but no, clearly this the person has to be able to operate at all levels across the the, the industry that we represent. You've got to be res- re- respected and have the cred, street cred, to walk through the door of a minister, or or a senior leader, or sit alongside further peak councils, plus attend the, lo- the local camp draft. The local ag show, the local rural ambassadors award night, and to engage at that level and know what you're engaging about. This isn't about you know kissing babies and shaking hands. This is about representing their understanding their concerns and representing their interests, plus managing a team of people. Exactly. And I think, do you feel too, when you're talking about engagement, I think, you know, we did go through a real social media era where people, you know, it it was quite easy to come up with a social media strategy and you feel like you've ticked some boxes, but it's getting harder and harder to engage with people as they turn off those platforms and probably go back to more of that 
um, grassroots stuff that you were just talking about, camp drafts and and um, and local events, but also that face to face communication or word of mouth communication. So that engagement again is just one of the biggest challenges that you must be facing. I think isn't every organisation, every business is facing the same challenge because shouldn't say yeah the shine's wearing off the social media it has it's, it's had a life of its own and potentially is not having meaning anymore and i and i think the people that the people that we really want to get in understand and work with are probably not the people that are sitting on the digitals yeah three or four hours a day or five or six hours a day and particularly as you said before we're, we're on the phone because we couldn't do zoom or teams because of our telescope connections aren't good enough mm. so if we think about we're going to rely on that co- to communicate with the bush we're obviously going to fail at that as well and i think just saying you've posted something to your website or you sent an email is no longer good enough to say you've communicated i'd have to agree with that and I think if you have a look at it now, and we've become so impulsive, you send an email. If you don't get an answer, you send a text now straight away. It's just we've, be, we've become we've become totally addicted to having immediacy uh, in our lives. And the bush isn't about that, and never has been. The bush generally likes to think about things before they answer. Yeah. And it's really convenient with there actually are black holes uh, of service too. So you could be checking a fence line for a couple of days if you have to. Absolutely. It's like everybody's on Zoom is also spending half their life texting or doing emails. Yeah. Exactly. That's just the life of the, the life of it. But the other thing, if we just come back and dwell, I think CCA, which is now CA, and even by me who's been on the on the edge without being on the inside, if the general producers out there understood what it was involved in daily and or what it represented on their behalf to keep, you know, to be at the table, I think they would be they would be staggered. There's something like fifty-five committees or working groups that CCA now CA represents producers' interests at a year it's an enormous workload that is huge it's probably it's the answer it's the untold story i believe and i think there'd be a whole new appreciation as there was once i got the list to find out how they're going to do all this um you know the national red weed which weed consultative committee for an example along with the nff the nff task force and the mla task force you know, the National Arborvirus Monitoring Program, Emergency Animal Disease Programs. I mean, they're like, there are 25 priority workforces, consultative committees or task forces roles that I'm actually not sure that's actually communicated out, that our 40,000 producers know there's somebody in there with their interests at heart. But it's also a lot of those committees would be filled uh, with producers and members of the the beef industry. So, you know, if if you if everybody in those communities was communicating what they were doing or what they were involved with, surely that would go some way to, to better communicating with industry. So do members need to take that on board a little bit more and be communicating with their peers? You're clearly right, but I think the process and the system, I think, are probably... Are, are the people there through their SFO with their SFO hats on or their CA hats on? I mean, 
really it just was transitioning with the formation of the Policy Council two years ago, which, you know, threw up another 23 interested people who were members of both, but to, to sit around and communicate back and just produce reports. So I think it's it's done. It's not a secret, but I think what's a secret is it's not communicated outside of that circle. Yeah, I'd agree with well, it that. It hasn't been easily communicated outside that circle. And I guess that comes back down to, to culture within the organisation perhaps. Understanding who your stakeholders are I think is a big step as well. But as you say, if you haven't met the group, you actually don't know how group the big is. That's right. And so you, you, you did mention before you were looking for another two directors in, I was going to say the new year, but here we are already. So what you've already got quite a broad range of skills on the board that's been announced. What other skills are you trying to hone in on? Good question because I'm not sure yet until we've worked out our skills matrix, worked out the committees, the priorities, but more importantly, we want to understand what are the burning issues and priorities of our potential 40,000 members. Communication by the sounds of it. Come up with a plan of how to address that, then have a look at the matrix of our directors of what gaps do we need to fill to be able to carry out those priorities or the strategy of delivering those priorities. And I think, and that will then determine what we need, what we need to fill with. I mean, ideally, I shouldn't say, I'd like to have another woman on the board. They make up a huge part of our, of our industry. They're, you know, they're at every kitchen table in a partnership of the, their businesses. Well, even more the, more than the kitchen table there, I think. Um... That's right. No, they are the equals and, and the wife generally, they do the bankers, they do the books, they do the yeah, plus manage the house. Mm-hmm. So that's a real, yeah, so I, I would really hope that we actually have have room to, in, to increase that number or if not, when the second go-around comes up because the, there's two directors rotate every year, that there are there are ladies out there who feel comfortable enough to want to get on board and nominate for the role or roles. How will it be funded? This was uh, one of the great uh, pieces of the puzzle to be discussed too, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it is, and because it's everything needs money to run and run efficiently and, and and well. And I guess we have we have the options like everything: a membership, sponsorship, and and some form of industry funding. The easiest thing to say is, oh, just give us the levy money. Um, that's clearly been a very awkward process and not really allowed for under statutory funding arrangements. So let's take that off the table as, 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 a, as a wish and work out how do other membership organisations survive? Well, they do it through events. They do it through training. They, they do it through offering value for money, be it through insurances, be it through a, a range of things and then we'll go for the sponsorship. If we could really go and tell our story that we have, that we're representing the interests and have the 40,000 email addresses of our members, I'm sure there'll be major corporations would see great value and, will, and be willing to pay for that access. And historically, success breeds success, and then the following will happen. And then if you're delivering value, people will be happy to pay for their membership because they're getting value for money. In fact, they're getting more than value for money. I realise your to-do list is quite extensive and there are quite a few priorities there. But, you know, when you're talking about taking away, you know, bridging the gap between some of the peak bodies and and bringing people together, surely some of that would have to be working with 
like Alpha and the Lot Feeders Association and, and some of those other in industry bodies that are tied in with the grass feed industry, which should give you further strength with those? would be easy to think that, given that mainly nearly every feedlot animal started its life on milk and grass. Mm. So it was one of ours, inverted commas, first. And you'd have to think that the majority of our issues are the same. And, yeah, so one would one would think if you're both walking through the door seek, seeking representative um, um, as a representative advocacy, you'd, you'd be far more successful. That, that's, that's a whole journey to be earned um, that people will want to uh, operate that way. Mm. So, yeah. It's, and we've got to be more than words. We've got, to, we've got to be able to be seen to be doing or achieving. And I think, you know, this is where you would come into the fore. You've got some tactics from, from a long and, and well, well-heeled career in the beef industry, so I'm sure you'd have some tricks in your, in your box. Jane, that's very generous. I still remember a bloke describing me as having all the tact of a well-flung brick. Yeah, but so, that's what uh, makes it interesting that's, and effective. That's very kind of you to say that. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm, I'm sure you've got some ideas. You wouldn't you wouldn't be sitting there, you know, clutching at straws, David. Oh no, I, I, I won't be. I won't be shy and putting the chin out. Um, <laughs> and and fortunately, yes, I mean, tw- twenty years at senior leadership role does give you a good a good list of phone numbers, a good list of people who are actually happy to give you a hearing. Um, although we're ever going to agree with you, but it has it has given me the opportunity to open a few doors to talk to people that maybe have some influence in the end. So you know you have got quite the the to do list and a list of priorities, but you know as the industry ticks on, and I guess traceability and and biosecurity and animal welfare are all issues that and sustainability are all issues that are front and centre at the moment. So I realise you you're hitting the ground running, but how do you feel? about some of those issues and, and, and taking them forward from this whole industry perspective? Jane, while we've got the, the challenges of the immediacy of Cattle Australia getting off the ground and, 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 and I guess, uh, getting its training, training wheels on, industry's not going to sit around and wait for us. And the things like sustainability or the CN30, they are coming. You know, CN30's not getting further away, it's getting closer away. So we've got to be we've got to be aware of it. We've got to be across it, and it's going to be. I mean, not sure we've overcome the natural resistance to something being posed on as an ag yet. But this is not run, This is not rushing away or running away. But the industry's been at the table and working on the sustainability framework for years now. So it's so at the industry level, I think it's primed. But I'm not sure we've got out there to every producer world to get them onto the journey of, un- of understanding. No, well, that, that goes back to the en- engagement because I think the su- sustainability framework and um, the engagement with that was quite concerning too. So, again, yes. that's the same the same issue coming up again. Yep. Well, it's, it's a bit like born in the city takes a long time to land in the bush. And I think, you know, full-colour, 25-page reports, they're just not the same as reading the reading the Sunday Mail on the toilet, right? So you're just not going to do it. So you've got to come up with uh, how we want people to get by in. I haven't got the answers yet. I'm just saying the work's been done, but we just got to work out how do we implement all that's been done and get an understanding and acceptance that it's actually going to be um, part, part of our future. I mean, we shouldn't be challenging our producers. They're not sustainable. 
some of them fifth generation. They couldn't be fifth generation on the land if they hadn't been sustainable. So it's just got you know we just got to work around the edges as to what it means to meet the expectations of the future. We just we can't just can't come around saying that we're untouchable because we're the food producers. There's a position in between. Yes, exactly. What do you think the resistance is? I the big thing actually I think is the lack of true understanding. If we have a look at not all the misfires, but the misunderstandings that happened about carbon farming first up and what was in, what was out. And the people end up, you know, signing up to these 25-year arrangements that are almost you know, like choking the productivity of their properties where they thought they were doing the right thing. So that we just got to get that out of the road first, you know, and come come back and work out what's the best way to communicate that we are going to need to change. I mean, without, you know, you look at New Zealand. New Zealand's brought out legislation that's going to force people to change or they're going to pay a tax. And be potentially very detrimental to rural industries as well. Canada's brought out a carbon tax on its fuel inputs that I believe, as of communication I had last week, is going to add about 80 bucks a head to a breeder in Canada. $80? $80 a year wow. through a carbon tax on fuel, fuel inputs to the farm. About fourteen dollars, I think, on a on a wiener. So, I mean, that's that's clearly what will get people's attention. But ideally, we want to be in front of that, so it's not an imposition, and therefore regulation, and therefore go through all the the hurt, the fights, the challenges first up. And gives credence to being involved with policy at a policy level and having solid good relationships with government, not necessarily banging the can in reaction to issues. Exactly, and you're thinking, regardless regardless of the votes in this country and the and government in this country is not won or lost in the bush, and so governments in this country will, will always be leaning towards the voters, which are effectively, you know, the more urbanised uh, operation. So we've got to we've got to work with government as to how it achieves both productivity level, people staying on the farm in the bush proudly wishing to be beef, beef producers, but meeting the expectations of the general community. Operating with a social licence. Well, yeah, social licence. Put a pretty a, word on it. A, Come on, David, use it. It's nice. It's a social licence. It is an interesting <laughs> word. But just we, we should take great encouragement, though, Jane. Another report out last year, which is the, the Pollinate Pulse Resort, that still highlights that farmers are amongst the most trusted members of the Australian community on rankings alongside doctors and scientists. And the top three drivers of trust in our industry were perceptions that Australian cattle farmers are ethical and trustworthy with the animals humanely raised. They listen, respect and respond to community concerns and we are taking actions to reduce environmental impact improving sustainability. So it's not bad that 61% of the metropolitan people think we're already attuned to that. Absolutely. So we're not starting with a blank sheet of paper. There's an inbuilt trust there that we can capitalise on. And you can also use that advocacy-wise because those 61% effectively are sitting in those seats that are determining who's in, who's in government. Well, that is incredibly encouraging um, and, a, and a wonderful uh, platform for you, I guess, to, to really drive home with your members. Yeah, as long as it's 61% next year. <laughs>
not, not, not 59. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I guess, well, what do you, what, is that your responsibility as Cattle Australia to, to maintain that trust with, with those urban consumers or is that, is that just a happy coincidence while you're doing other things? No, I, it has to come from there. I mean, those 61% of people, you have to understand, wonder what their engagement is with the bush to come up with those answers. Where has that come from? Is that coming through education? Is it coming through communication, through TVs, holidays? It would be really nice to understand how they formed that opinion or on what basis they formed that opinion because that then is the influencer. And as a matter is, that do we leave that to the MLA or do we, or do we leave that to the cattle producers? And uh, we leave it to everybody. Um, it's in everybody's interest. That's exactly right. And I think that comes back to one of the points you made before is is producers needing to better understand how these peak bodies work and the roles and responsibilities, um, yes. including MLA, um, because that you know that's just one of the other ones that is, is so vastly misunderstood about about their role within the industry. And it is, and it's the classic, and I said it back in 2017, is the MLA is the most kick-to-death organisation in rural Australia. There's a right to vote every year and 3.5% of people choose to. But do they so, understand that they're supposed to? Like, the, well, it they, can, they can make a difference. They can vote to make a difference, for the, but 96.5% of people choose not to. This is why I'm so intrigued as to why you've taken this role on, David. Cattle producers are exceptionally frustrating. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. I actually don't, yeah, I don't think they are. Um, and I think I think it's it's actually just given the right communication tools, and as I said at the start, I've learned through part of my business career and, and dealing with people not many are older than me now, is the bush are full of people who are deep thinkers. Rarely are they reactive thinkers. So plant a seed, and an answer and response will come back generally better than you thought. But if you pose something and you look for a reaction, you'll get the one you don't want. So I think if you just start, go down the journey, start informing what, what, what's happening, what people are doing on their behalf, what are their ideas. And what we haven't touched on yet, and you finish on is the new policy council, which now is possibly the most widely dem- demographic model following on from the regional advisories, WAX, the racks, the 15, if we manage to successfully fill all those 15, you've got almost every production system and area in Australia sitting around a table or sitting on a Zoom conference discussing the local issues and opportunities. They can then easily be the message tip back to the pub, the footy club, the cricket club, the rodeo, the bowls club of what's happening in the industry and what are they seeing, what are we doing. The word of mouth. Do you cook at home? Absolutely. You do? I'm the cook. You're yes. the cook. So what's your... Flat- I, live, I live alone, remember? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. No, no. I, yes, no. Food food and I are at one. Yeah. You only got to look at my body shape to work that out. <laughs> well, what's your favourite cut of beef to cook? When you, um, you know, nothing fancy, uh, just when you're at home on a Wednesday, what's your, what's your favourite cut? It has changed from what probably for 20 years was 
cube roll or rib fillet. Yeah. To now it'll be porterhouse or sirloin, whichever okay. state you come from. And why is that what made the change? Well, two things have made the change. MSA has actually taken uh, the toughness out of porterhouse steak um, just by being able to identify those animals that if they pass MSA, then the porterhouse will be highly edible. But no, it really comes down, I think, just a fatty content in the mouth. As you probably get older, um, certainly not more health conscious, but as you get older, you just seem to like the less fatty cuts. Except for my grandfather, who I can distinctly remember cutting the great wad of fat off a piece of rump steak and leaving it to last. He loved it. Yeah, no, I'm, I've always said that you should always cook the meat with the fat on. You don't have to eat the fat, but you've got to cook it with it on there. Um, but, yeah, so, no, so, and I guess grain finishing and or, dare I say, wagyu encourages you to eat, uh, to eat strip loin um, rather, than the, rather than the cube roll or rib fillet. Yeah, fair enough. Well, look, as a, as a well-travelled man who I'm sure has been um, wined and dined at some of the world's greater establishments when it comes to showcasing beef, what's the best beef meal that you've been offered elsewhere that you haven't had to cook? The best steak I've eaten in the last five years was actually at a pub in Roma. Stop it. And it really? really, really, and it really, really surprised me because so much so I actually took a photograph of the, of the steak and of the menu, and, and sent it back to the bloke that actually processed it. So uh, I don't do that very often, but it was actually quite exceptional. That's and, amazing. Uh, unexpected to uh, to have that uh, have that satisfaction. I think that's a lovely way to end. Thank you, David. Pleasure, Jane. That was David Foote, a beef producer from Mount Kilcoy and the chair of Cattle Australia. Next week, we'll be hearing from James Kent, the chair of the Beef 24 Stud Committee. Till then, thanks for listening. I'm Jane Cudahy. Thanks for listening. You can hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. And if you are enjoying listening to the show, we would appreciate a quick rating and review. Visit beefaustralia.com.au for more information on this great event.